podcast where the beard gets weird today we are wrapping up our election special with park trace but as always joining me is my hetero life mate joel hinton howdy joe what's up bitches all right so we have our infield correspondent keith howdy howdy y'all god damn that's right and we have a new guest on the pod tonight. His name is John Richardson. He's a good friend of mine from academia. And John, why don't you go ahead and uh, say hello and introduce yourself a little bit. Hello, how's it going? Okay, so I met, I met Joel, yeah, going to school together. That's when we both studied uh, marketing and what's the last class we had together? I don't remember there, Joel. Was, uh, I believe it was database management, something like that. Anyway, my background, I obviously didn't come to school as a young student. I come out of the military, so I have a background in infantry operations and counterintelligence, human intelligence, and I've done corporate security a little bit, and I'm currently teaching math. Good, good. So, you know, it's an it's a absolute pleasure to have John on today. Um, because he has a lot of, he has the most experience with our federal government than either one of us. And, you know, he, he has a lot of great information to share. So it was a, a joy for me to have him on our episode tonight. And tonight, as Britton mentioned, is going to be election closing thoughts. We're also going to get in, potentially get into a few other topics as well. But yeah, let's, um, start that off and um let's just do like a round table real quick of what was everyone's initial thought when they found out the ap called biden and uh we'll start with you john then we're just gonna go down this gambit this gambit here that shows on the screen so we'll go john Britton, keith blah 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 well i would like to say that i was surprised that it happened i can't say that i i was upset even though i expected it <laughs> So I, I believe that all these things are, you know, kind of pre-planned. So it wasn't a, a huge surprise. Understood. Britton? Um, I was feeling, I would say, part one, I was pretty optimistic with the Trump, which we were kind of watching all that live. Part two, I wasn't as optimistic. And I would say by the time at AP had already, you know, come out with it, I'd kind of started to you know, swallowing that pill that they were going to push him in there by then. Oh, God, yeah. I wouldn't, I wasn't too, too surprised by the time AP released that. Leaning on that point though, as far as Kamala goes, what are people's thoughts? Because Kamala is more of a so-called democratic socialist than fucking Bernie Sanders is. And she is a potentially our vice president. What does that fuck it? How does that make you guys feel? Well, the biggest concern is not that she's potentially our vice president. Bingo. <laughs> I'm with she that. She could be our president. Right. Which is what we can get into a little bit later on. I've 
prepared some material on uh, the curse, but yeah, I'm with him. And I, I think we all know that e- even if she's not going to come into a position of being the president, that uh, Joe's going to be in the passenger seat either way. I mean, she's going to be running this show. She's the Cheney of this era. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Now, <laughs> pretty much. Now, um, we were we were talking about this before the show, and um, you know, anybody if anybody wants to talk about something in particular, just spout it out, and you know, I'll, I'll shut the fuck up. We can move forward on anything, but you know, as far as that, and just like how we were talking earlier about like how far a small portion of the left has gone, but how much it's dominated the conversation in media circles and everything else. And I was mentioning earlier that, you know, I was um, watching some democratic interviews for people who, you know, kept re- were reelected for their seats or, you know, it was a swung seat or whatever. And almost all of them were saying, we have to control the squad. We have to, make sure that we get rid of this socialism rhetoric because we're losing voters and we're losing support. And I think that Ben Shapiro made a really good point that the Democratic Party in itself is on the verge of falling apart. And, you know, the conservative window, like I don't consider myself a conservative, but I will say the conservative umbrella is a lot broader than the, you know, Democratic umbrella in the two-party kind of system scenario um john what do you think about that oh man i don't know <laughs> i don't i don't have a whole lot of input to put on that um, um I, I actually my my brain my brain is drifting a little bit thinking about the whole dynamics of of a basically a feminine society that we're that is leading this show, like we've emasculated men. This this is now, a, if you want to look at it like a yin yang relationship, you know, the the effeminate is is running this show, and so therefore I think that's everything's an emotional, everything's feelings, every you know, like that's that's what's in the driver's seat. So there's no constraints of masculinity, and you just you just caught me to at a moment when that was what was just going through my mind. So continue with that thought cuz I think you have a really really good point there. So I if you think about this and I know we were going to discuss uh later the curse of Tippecanoe, but if you want to think back to to Native American society pre United States uh during times of war with especially the northern tribes the mohican tribes they would the men would take charge during times of war but in times of plenty then they would be forced to step down and the females of the tribe would run everything to ensure that all the resources were distributed and this is just like a basic biological thing that is manifests itself on a huge scale and in western thought in western society and christian society traditionally We've looked at this kind of like uh, Ayn Rand where, you know, I like to describe it as a building where the masculine is the structure and the feminine is the classical, you know, I mean, the uh, 
the romantic exterior. It's the softness, right? The soft touch. But whatever, whatever the case, it has to. You can't leave the constraints of the masculine. And right now we've lo- we've left the constraints of the masculine. Like it's just all, all romantic and all false and all bullshit. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, to be quite honest, that's kind of what got me on. Um, that really caught me early on in like the self and on my self improvement kind of journey, and you know, the last, the beginning of a few years ago, or whatever, to get where I'm at now. And um, that's honestly what led me into befriending, you know, so many proud boys, and you know, at one point was a founding member. And that was just because, like, I had been reading so much into tribalism and masculinity and you know we come from tens of thousands of years of where to be a man when you turn 13 14 you have to go out and find out how to survive you have you know you're taken to the woods and given you know ayahuasca and you have to hunt or what the fuck ever you have to do something to kill off that ego kill off that childhood and become a man and be that protector and that you know, hunter and that gatherer to an extent. And, you know, I know from my experience, I sought out, you know, different means of tribalism to a degree or connecting with, you know, other, you know, friends of mine just to get that kind of primal sense because you don't get that from education. You don't get that from the media. You don't get that anywhere in this day and age. That's a a lost art and it's only been around for several hundred years. Well, if you if you think about this too, you were speaking of that that uh, like there's no rite of passage, and that could also explain a whole lot of why these kids, these young people, are like acting out the way they are and anti-authoritarianism, just wanting to challenge everything. They never experienced real rite of passage. They never come up with that moment where they became adults. You know what I'm saying? So now they're in like a perpetual state of childhood. Yeah, and then, you know, tying that back into this election season, that's what it is. Like, the entire rhetoric on media and everything is simply, you're not woke enough, we don't like what you say, we don't like your thoughts, this man, Orange Man is bad, he says dumb stuff, and because of that, we're not going to accept any possible good that he may do, and we're going to call people... We're, we're the all-inclusive society, but we're going to call people dumb and uneducated if they have a different thought process in them. And that's why we're so divisive now. I'd like to uh, hit on something you said a minute ago with this. Um, y- you mentioned a like transition, if you will, from like a masculinity period or society into like the feminine style um, society that we're kind of going into now with the emotion and everything. How much of that do you think, um, you know, falls into the like the order or societal norms that we've created for ourselves and the way that, you know, industrialized civilization has kind of rolled into the technology age and, and we've progressed as humans throughout, like basically domesticating ourselves. How much of that would you land on, you know, nature kind of taking its course and how much of it is maybe manipulated a little more? Well, I, I, I kind of believe in like, systems approach to just about everything and you can you can start the very micro and and expand it all the way the macro and our we're like a a macro version of the tribe our nation is our world is so 
if you think about, if you go all the way back to when hunter-gatherers, when the men would go out and they would go get the food and they would do the dangerous things and the women stayed back with the children in the, you know, in the camp. Um, I view kind of the coastal cities and the the hubs of academia and all these people that don't have to hunt and gather. You know, they don't work. They're, they're like in the, they, they're, ne- they're never leaving the village. And they think that there's nothing outside of the village. Everything just somehow, the deer just magically appears over the fire pit, you know? <laughs> so I think that's where we are, like, in a, in a macro scale. That is actually a brilliant analogy and, a, you know, a great comparison because that's really what it is. I mean, we were talking earlier about, like, you know, one thing that's kind of grinded my gears throughout when the AP called it was seeing all these educators and people who had influence and whatnot just dog anybody who voted Trump and went as far as to say, like, because they didn't live in these cities and these safe havens, they were, you know, uneducated and retards or meth heads or something like that. And what they don't realize are they are literally the pillars of the comfortable society that they, you know, embrace. Yeah, they want to, by, biologically, they want to re, redistribute resources. I mean, that is, that's a needed aspect of our survival is, you know, to have that person, that, that feminine brain that makes sure everyone is fed. But they've completely forgotten how the food got there in the first place to distribute. Right. So uh, they've been so insulated so long that, you know... And it's almost like the if imagine if the tribe just like talked shit to the warrior after he showed up with with the game, you know? He'd be like, Well, you know what? I don't have to bring this shit back to the tribe. I could stay right out there in the field and eat this shit. And I think that's what's about to happen. Well, and you know what? That is a perfect segue into the whole potential trucker style strike. So, um, you know, one thing that has given me hope I'm gonna just getting for the show but one thing that's giving me hope is that because tiktok still isn't you know owned by an american source it's really hard for the the, for their algorithm to pick up and censor as much as most other social media platforms so you see a lot more authenticity than you would anywhere else and i've seen a ton of patriots come out people following each other and you know saying things like hey you follow me i'll follow you if shit fucks up and they need to fuck around and find out, they're going to find out and there's enough people to support that. And in this kind of like light I've been seeing in all these things, um, I was talking to John earlier, like I've seen at least over 300 truckers talking about a trucker strike this month and like, hey, you know, you went from saying that we were disenfranchising you and now it's, you know, unless you're this coastal elitist or this young liberal, then every, then everybody else is disenfranchised. And the truckers are the ones that bring you your shit. If you piss them off and they decide to do this strike and shut our country down, what happens next? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. That's very interesting. I don't think my uh, backyard farm's gonna be quite enough right 
<laughs> no, you probably need a couple acres at least. <laughs> right. There was actually a really good uh, graphic in um, something I saw in a homesteading group I follow. And it was basically showing you like exactly how much land and what exactly you needed to plant to sustain a family of four over the period of years. Yeah, I've seen that. And, you can get the yeah, book and, it's and all like that. Yeah, and it's like an acre of land, and you have to segment it to these different things and cycle them and stuff. Yeah, I, I try to grow as much as I can in my little backyard farm, but like he said, it's not going to be enough. You, you really have to to plant some... Well, I mean, you guys, uh, where, what state are you in again? I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot. North Carolina? I'm in uh, Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah, you got a winter to contend with up there, so <laughs> does right. add a little bit of complexity to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, winter makes everything difficult. But it also gives me something to work towards, you know, really grind it out, but we're really relying on the season, so. Yeah. Well, I, I think I'm going to planting a whole lot of yams and, like, not sweet potato yams, <laughs> like actual yams. Right. And, I think aren't sweet potatoes better for you, though? Yeah, probably. I mean, I actually I've grown a lot of sweet potatoes here, but just for the sheer amount of uh, carbohydrates and uh, is it carbohydrates? Um, calories. Yeah, yeah, sure. they're heavy. Yeah, the sheer amount of calories. From, it's like nothing but sugar. And I'm talking about like in, invasive yams, like Asian yams. You know, not wow. not our version. I mean, you can get hundreds of pounds of those out of your front yard, enough to live off of. That's right. Weird. Hmm. Hey, Mark Watson did it in the Martian, so we can too. Right? The movie was epic, dude. It was, it was really good. Well, going in that kind of theme that I was talking about with the truckers and whatnot, um, John, if you don't mind, let's start walking through this anatomy of a revolution stuff. because I think it's really interesting. And just for, you know, validity... Um, the entire report from the original author is on JSTOR, which anybody who's been in college will know what JSTOR is. It's basically a, you know, the Wikipedia of academic journals. And, um, yeah, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Okay. So I, I've been doing a lot of reading lately, trying to figure out just what type of revolution it looks like has been engineered and i know that's a lot a strong word to a lot of people but the the truth is is that there's no such thing as a spontaneous revolution like ever <laughs> you know there's always there's always the mass that follows the the leaders you know and the leaders plan and think and they you know they, they come up with a methodology to ensure that they have successful revolution so we've we've got a lot of aspects of a Maoist revolution that's going or a Maoist insurgency, but particularly this this color revolution, and back during the Obama administration, the, this Stanford academic Michael McFaul, he was the ambassador to Russia. Anyway, they he he kind of authored this of the seven stages of the successful political revolutions common in these in these colored revolutions that went throughout Asia. And here here's the seven key aspects that you have to have, and that's one you have to have a semi-autocratic rather than fully autocratic regime. 
you know, so you, you ask yourself, do we have that? Or if we don't have that, did they portray Trump oh. as at least semi-autocratic? Right. So, I mean, do you, I, I see, I think that they were trying to trap him with COVID. Like they actually wanted him to be fully autocratic. No, I with, agree. With COVID and he didn't take the bait. But, I absolutely agree. But being semi-autocratic actually kind of fits the bill better for, you know, that's one of the things that you have to have. So right. that's that's number one. Number two, you have to have an uh, an unpopular incumbent. And I mean, I don't know. Trump's Trump's not. I wouldn't say unpopular, but unpopular around the world to many. Right. And you have to have a, a united and organized opposition. I think we've seen that with Antifa and BLM and. And, and their ties to people in Washington into the insurgency. Absolutely. And then you ha you have to have an ability quickly to drive home the point the voting results were falsified. That's the key. And yeah, that's the big flag to me. And when you start talking about rules of three in in the combat hunter course, there's this thing that we talk about the rules of three. If you see one anomaly. You look at that and you say, oh, that's just an anomaly. If you see two anomalies, it might raise your eyebrows a little, but still continue mission. You're okay with two anomalies. When you hit three anomalies, statistically, something is being engineered there. That's when you need to look deeper. So we're definitely, when we hit num number four here, an ability quickly drive on the point that voting results are falsified, I, I'm saying, okay, well, we're hitting some anomalies. This starting to look like this pattern of revolution. Now let's keep going. So number five, enough independent media to inform citizens about the falsified vote. We have that going on right now. We're, I mean, that's why we're discussing it. And number six, a political opposition capable of mo mobilizing tens of thousands or more demonstrators to protest the electoral fraud. I mean, this I is also very fascinating. Doing that right now. See, this isn't sounding good to me. <laughs> no, it's uh, we're playing right into the hand. And and seven, division among the regime's coercive forces. And we're seeing that. I mean, even Trump's son-in-law is telling him to concede. So we we've played into this like right into the hand. That is mind blowing when you look at it. So again, what is it? One is a semi-autocratic rather than fully autocratic regime. Two, an unpopular incumbent. Three, an un or a united and organized opposition. Four an ability quickly to drive home the point that voting results were falsified. Five, enough independent media to inform citizens about the falsified vote. Six, a political opposition capable of mobilizing tens of thousands or more demonstrators to protest electoral fraud. And seven, divisions among the regime's coercive forces. And also, wow. if you look, there's a matrix that they that they have, you know, to determine what is the level of political. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right term for it. But this. Does anybody remember the matrix that I'm talking about? They just pointed out in, uh, in a few articles I've seen recently that we're 20 points higher on this matrix than we were in 1860, as far as like, predicting a, a civil war. 
So when you combine all of those, when you say, okay, we've hit all, all seven key factors, we are 20 points higher in the political instability, whatever, you know, factor than in 1860, it's sure. not looking good. And you know what? I want to pause there for two seconds. Two things I want to mention on that. So first thing, you know, for anybody that's skeptical about this information, again, this is an academic journal. You can clearly see there's over, this is based off of data from over 20 revolutions. I believe the number is like 24, 25 or something like that. And, you know, that says a lot. And, you know, to go even further as far as... <clears throat> Well, well, this other model that we were talking about, Joel, with the that says that we're twenty points higher than eighteen sixty, that model is eighty percent accurate, I believe it is. Some something in that neighborhood. And that's insane. Anybody who's even taken a basic statistics course will know that if your Pearson coefficient is above point five, that shit's pretty much valid. And you know, to to the point about the Civil War or anything like that being above that. What people don't realize, and I don't mean this to make this like a conservative liberal kind of point, but who were the ones that fought essentially against slavery back in the Civil War? It was the Republicans. Who were the ones that more embraced women's suffrage? It was the conservatives. So, I mean, like most of your major movements that created these progressive kind of policies were from, and I'm not trying to tie it to the party, what I'm trying to say is that it was from a collective of conservative minds in that time period. And while, you know, I think that's what a lot of people discredit the current, you know, this neoconservative movement is, you know, everyone's just so like, oh no, they like this guy, they're this or that. And, um, you know, you can go on with the revolution type thing, but that it just kind of made me think of that and it was really interesting to me and honestly i don't think we're looking at a standards we can't compare this to you know the the civil war right we're not the same type of nation the world's not the same what we're looking at is destabilization and destabilization will create just enough like i said it's kind of like the heart patient you know what they're looking for, the moment they're looking for is the Great Reset. So they're wanting to stop the heart and resuscitate the nation in the view that they want it to be from here on forward. But it's that moment where the heart stops. So that's, that's the whole enchilada. That's what matters. That predicts the future, what happens. And that, you're on the dark side of the moon. Nobody knows. Humans aren't that predictable. Right. We we will do things against our own good sometimes just out of matter of principle. Bro. And and that's something you find on the right is principled actors. Whereas on the left, a lot of people and I'm not gonna say that people on the left aren't principled, they're morally loose, I guess. You know, like uh when you have people that grew up in, in church and things like this, you know, where they where they grew up with this strong regiment of sacrificial. Yeah, duty. Yeah, duty, sacrifice, you know, all the same things that the military installs in you. That's installed in, in conservatives from the time they're born. So they're more willing to do something completely uh, unpredictable 
Right. Just because right. it's a a matter of of duty to them, you know, they're willing to suffer. And we're not like other animals. Other animals will not suffer. They will always take, you know, what is the path of least resistance? Right. Well, we we are human. Right. <laughs> There's a reason we are the way we are. And I mean, and to your point too, I mean, like, and I really hate that it's come to this dialogue of it's the left, but it has become such an easy general blanket statement that you're almost forced to at this point because that's how the mainstream media has portrayed it and it has created this divisiveness. And I mean, you think even in like the early days of COVID, you know, I know it was a meme as far as the liberal friend or anti-gunner, anti-2A person asking to borrow a gun, but I shit you not, I had six people ask me if they could borrow a gun when we first shut things down. And of course, I had to say no because I'm a responsible fucking gun owner. So yeah. what happens when there's a fucking, you know, if there's any type of rebellion, you know, they might fight at first, but a, they're going to lose a huge chunk right off the rip because the people who can't protect themselves are going to go to the people who can. Yeah, I mean, I have people, I have guns loaned out to people right now. <laughs> because, you know, just uh, especially, usually females would, you know, live alone or whatever and crazy times coming into COVID, but. Right, that makes sense. But, uh, you know, you kind of want to say, well, you know what? You probably should have thought about that a long time ago. <laughs> No, I no, but I mean, there is different environments and different conditions from that. You know, a lot of the people that I know that have asked me are people from my previous life, which you know, yeah, I, I you gotta be a little bit responsible, and with some people you choose, you know, if they have some type of questionable behavior, questionable past. It's not that I'm against them or not wanting to do that for them. It's just you know, legally if the probability of something potentially happening, even if it's relatively small, if it's still in the 10% range, I'm going to have to question myself and maybe say no. So before we get too far away from, I kind of wanted to address what you were saying about the psychology of the left and, and why we have to kind of address that this is a leftist thing. Okay. Uh, I know it's not a very popular person to quote, but I'm going to quote Ted Kaczynski. I mean, he was a, a brilliant genius that the CIA went to to try to understand people. And I'm sure no one's going to know who that is, unfortunately. Okay, so Ted Kaczynski, otherwise known as the Unabomber. <laughs> um, yeah, he was he was a mathematics prodigy. CIA recruited right. him uh, in this Manchurian candidate program because he was, he was also a brilliant social scientist. And they were trying to understand what drives people and how you can hack the human. And that's what kind of drove him into being the, the Unabomber was he saw what was to come and was trying to stop it. So when he when he wrote his manifesto and sent it in, you know, to I forget the news outlet that he sent it into to have it published, Washington Post, I believe, and New York Times. Of the world. So one but he was in his manifesto, he was speaking of the dangers of leftism and why he didn't want leftist people in his movement that he was trying to start. And one thing, he said, uh, one reason you can't have people on the left is because of their need for rebellion and for membership in a movement. 
said leftists or persons of similar psychology type often are unattracted to a rebellious or activist movement whose goals and membership are not initially leftist. The resulting influx of leftist types can easily turn a non-leftist movement into a leftist one. And a lot of these people that are the orchestrators of this movement, like I said, they're going towards this great reset. It's actually a capitalist movement. Like they want the multinational corporations to, to be what's in charge. Right. Right. They've recruited the left to get them there, but those people are not ideologues. They're not leftist. Right. They're sociopaths, but they're using the left and, and tech since kind of warned them against the dangers of using the left for this, because once you turn them on, you can't turn them off. You're not going to turn Antifa off. Right. It's going to be an interesting play when we go into this J curve. Like what will, what will human nature do? Where will we come out the other end? And we don't know. Right. And not, not only that, I mean, you think of, you know, what's been brewed with the very, very far left and the extremist left. We'll use Antifa as an example, right? And then you'll use, we'll, we'll go ahead and use, for the sake of experience, the Proud Boys on the other end, right? You have one group that the left won't even acknowledge most times as any type of terror organization. And then you have another group that is, like, ridiculously diversified and literally a drinking club, and they want to talk down on them and call them racist or xenophobic or misogynist or anything. I mean, I watched Enrique have to correct a CNN reporter because they called him a male chauvinist instead of a Western chauvinist. Like, so you have those two different bits right there. Like, one side, and this is what I'm kind of seeing as far as all these Trump supporters and stuff like that, is, you know, people who voted for Trump or supported him didn't do it because they, you know, believe, you know, were racist, xenophobic, or anti-pro-choice or anything like that. It was just the closest thing to anti-establishment that we could get our hands on. And not, oh, and, and we would have been fine if Biden made the lead in real time to our, you know, positions. Because, I mean, we would literally wake up and overnight there would be a million lead point. Uh, you know, a million uh, votes lead, and then he'd be negative 5,000 within like a five hour time period. And that's, and then everyone starts disenfranchising them even more. So you have this entire population of people who are doing everything they can to do the right thing and to not be racist, not be xenophobic, not be, you know, against choice or anything like that. We literally are libertarians in a sense where I do me, you do you, but then you just keep putting us down, putting us down, putting us down. If you think that eventually they're not going to retaliate, then you're just fucking ignorant. Well, I mean, never underestimate the power of buzzwords on, on people with low quality thought processes. So if you label people, you know, racist, this and that, you know, that's, you, you've won. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want, let me, again, I, I'm going to take you back to this one more time with Ted Kaczynski and the left, because this is too good not to mention. Uh, we're also talking about nature a lot, right? And how right. we have to kind of get back to, to nature. And so Joe Biden's big push that he's using to get the left with him is ironically 
the Green New Deal and nature, right? Oh my God! So, so here's here's what Tagsinski said about the left and nature, as he says that uh, that leftism is in the long run inconsistent with wild nature, with human freedom, and with the elimination of modern technology. Leftism is collectivist. It seeks to bind together the entire world, both nature and the human race, into a unified whole. But this implies management of nature and of human life by organized society. And And it requires advanced technology. You can't have a united world without rapid transportation and communication. You can't make all people love one another without sophisticated psychological techniques. You can't have a planned society without the, the necessary technological base. So by design, they are anti-nature. And they don't know it. They're unaware of it. And that's absolutely like head on, you know, head on the nail. I was listening to a, I think he won his Congress seat in Texas, but he was like a uh, ex-military uh, type guy. And he was talking about this, like why conservatives were against the Green New Deal and the Paris Agreement and stuff like that. And it's, you know, he, he broke it down very simply, I thought. It was that we're not against doing things to decrease our carbon footprint on the earth but we want to do those things sensibly. You know, there's things we can do in our own country to help that. But if we join this accord or do this deal, okay, we only have America that we can be accountable for. What the fuck do you think India and China is going to do? You think they're going to stand by the standards of the Green New Deal? Hell fucking no. So, well, actually, I mean, they're, they're going to use it as the tool for them to to take power. I mean, their, their stock market is rallying right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know, man. And, and it's, it's easy. It's easy for social engineers to manipulate these people because they're, they're so easy to understand. And what makes them so easy to understand is one, they're scared. They make fear-based decisions. But also they they have a maladaptive power process. They were always the people who never felt like they had any power. Like, I mean, you go down to, like, you remember the Tri-C, like yeah. the Cross-Cultural Center, all these folks, you look at them and you're like, Jesus Christ, what happened here? Like, it's the biggest sad sacks you've ever seen in your life. But they found a way to, like, teleport themselves to the top of the power, to the top of the dominance hierarchy, right? And so... This was kind of closing up on Tekasinski again. He says, above all, leftism is driven by the need for power. And the leftist seeks power on a collective basis through identification with a mass movement or, or an organization. He says, leftism is unlikely ever to give up technology because technology is too valuable a source of collective power. And that is where we're going. That's where Chicoms come in. This is where Silicon Valley comes in. The whole enchilada is about this source of collective power and their maladaptive power process. And what people don't understand is, this guy was essentially developed and engineered by our federal fucking government. Yeah. Yeah, back in the 70s. They, they, what is happening now has been planned, and they've been working on it since the 70s, since they recruited Ted Kaczynski, and he was working to stop it. 
Like, claim it conspiracy theorists all you fucking want. But just the, the fact Unabomber that... was right. He was. He was absolutely right. It's That's it's my favorite fucking tinfoil hat t-shirt, bro. Shout out to Sam Tripoli and the tinfoil hat crew on tinfoil hat podcast. But that is my favorite fucking t-shirt. It's got him on the front. It says the, tin- the Unabomber was right. Side note, we need to get on that. Oh, yeah. I have a bunch of t-shirts I want to make. But yes. I... But yeah, dude, I mean, that's the fucking thing that gets me. And it's like fucking Steven Crowder, Ben Shapiro, Temple, even any of these guys, like they have conservative views light compared to, you know, data and what, I mean, look at Greg, uh, Greg Graffin from Bad Religion, old punk guy, right? He's a hardcore, essentially libertarian to a sense, you know, academic and doctor. And, you know, this is the problem with the people with the differing views is we see the patterns. We see the data. This is not just a one-time occurrence. I mean, it's, you know, this shit has been going on cyclical for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And, you know, it's literally like just a handful of people just kind of paying attention more or less. Hmm. So the Bolsheviks in Russia, um, <laughs> when when they were the outsiders, they opposed censorship and the secret police, and they advocated self determination, everything that we're advocating, right? Right. But as soon as they, as soon as they got in power, they flipped the switch, and I, and that's what we've seen with the left. We're we're gonna see. The, and we are seeing them flip the switch. You know, I was thinking back. I've been listening to The Doors a lot. Yeah. One of the things that Jim Morrison says is when you become okay with the establishment or whatever, you are the establishment. So you know what, those hippies have flipped the switch. <laughs> that's what's broken my heart. Like, most of my friends growing up were old, like, hardcore punk kids. Yeah. And, like, all the hardcore punk kids are, like, pro-establishment as fuck now. Yeah, and it's dude, like, I know all kinds of punk, like, people that fucking literally are in punk bands. And they're, like, pro-establishment. Funny thing is, speaking of the Doors, did you know that his dad, George Stephen Morrison, was a United States yeah. uh, Navy uh, rear admiral? Yeah, yeah. dude. Uh, he was involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident yeah, in August of 1964, bro, which is... uh. What is the escalation of American involvement in the Vietnam War? Gotta send that motherfucker. Well, and you know, like, to that point, too, it's like... How punk? You know, from the 70s until now, the amount of, you know, difference, it, the progression on that, and how divisive things really come, and how extremists both ends have come, are pretty extraordinary. I mean... You know, thinking of like speaking of like people who were Vietnam, pre Vietnam, and whatnot, especially in the military and, you know, government kind of complex. Back in those days, prior to like the Korean War and stuff, the government had like 80% approval rating. Like we actually trusted our government. And then, you know, then going into Vietnam and shit like that is when we really got on this course where I believe it's lower than 20% now. As far well, as the moment the CIA became a thing, you're right. <laughs> it's when we lost when we lost faith in the government. Then they started televising that shit too. Ironically, around the same time, they started what? I believe they started televising the war and shit for oh, the yeah, first time ever around the same it, yeah. time. 
was doing like you know thinking of like that you know the jim morrison's ad and stuff like that like i used to I, I there was a couple of them in my lifetime but i remember i had this old um one of my buddy's dads was a like early early uh black ops kind of or blackwater kind of guy um i went i think i was at there in like the 1964 very beginning of vietnam and like just the different like operations and shit i don't know if they're real i don't know if he was losing or anything like that but he shared so much information with us about the crazy things they would do in these crazy kind of like black operations and shit for the cia and stuff like that that like it, that that alone made me wonder like you know i can't take anything at face value that anybody truly tells me Get this. Here's a here's one. Speaking of which, early in the Vietnam War, so you know that we went in there to pull France out, right? What what most people don't understand is that Ho Chi Minh was pro-American. His favorite document was the U.S. Constitution, and I believe his Thomas Jefferson was his his idol. He wanted Vietnam to be the next United States. He he was modeling his whole revolution after it, and as, he was asking for Kennedy's help, and he sent him this long, heartfelt letter, and he's like, look, you know, if the United States doesn't back us, then the communists are going, I'll have no no ability to to maintain my position, because the communists were offering to back them to get out from underneath the French role, or French rule, Right. And they were offering him money and military support and everything else. He's like, well, no, I don't want to go with the communists. My idea, my vision is the United States. Right. I think it's one of the reasons why it got him killed. Lyndon won him out of there, so. Yeah. So what what the CIA did, they took this letter that uh, Ho Chi Minh wrote and, and had them to deliver to to Kendi. The CIA just made sure that letter never hit Kendi's desk. Because they were tied to the French business interest in Vietnam. And we've continued this. Like I said, the reason that the the deep state hates Donald Trump so much is because the CIA, they don't have national interest. They have business interest. And their business interest is the multinational corporation. And the multinational corporation's big business is in the upcoming Chinese market. And you know what? You bring up a good point there. And it's one thing I've been trying to tell people. Like, you know, I have a lot of friends that were in the military and are even in the military still. And, you know, the common theme that I hear from people, and I remember this, like, when my dad died, he was 100% service-connected disabled. But under the Obama administration, he almost had to get sent to a plotter's field because the VA wouldn't give you the money to pay for funeral expenses or you know, any type or anything like that. You, had yeah, to I think they gave a hundred dollars towards uh, burial expenses or something like that. Is ridiculous. What? So what yeah. the thing is, it is you have to pay everything up front, and it. But yeah, you're right. Based on like your disability level or anything like that, you got a certain amount. The base was a hundred dollars. Since my dad was a hundred percent connected, um, disabled, his was like fifteen hundred. But you have to pay it out out front. And because I was a broke college kid, I didn't have any money, so he almost went to Plotter's Field until someone actually, like, donated it. But my point was, like, the VA was failing under the Obama administration oh, and prior to that. And then you go forward, and mind you, that was a week before he finally was going to the Supreme Court of Appeals for his 18 years of back pay they owed him. But 
fast forward. Now, like you talk to a lot of vets and it's like they're getting more money during active duty. They have more access to ammunition and resources for training and stuff like that. Not, not uh, only that, just the VA hospital, dude. The VA hospital up until Trump was absolute hell. I hated going there. Like I would, I would be so stressed when I left there because it was like going to the DMV every time. And now it's actually a pleasant experience. Right. And not only that, like even from a foreign policy standpoint, yeah, he didn't technically create peace in North Korea or between the UAE and Israel. But what he did was, was say, hey, we need to make a deal to where you're not going to start any more shit, because if you do, we're going to intervene and we're going to go balls to the wall because this needs to end. That's more or less what happened between North Korea and especially between like Jordan and the UAE and stuff like that. And like. Yeah, I mean, there's not total peace, but you don't see them, you know, practicing fucking nuclear strikes. You don't see, you know, the you see this new agreement between Jordan and UAE and stuff like that. It is something. And that it, is... He's the first president in my lifetime that's actually de-escalated conflict. Right. We haven't started a new war or anything. And even though that may not be sig- very, very significant, it is the first time in decades... And the fact that it got done should say a lot in itself. Have you ever read the book uh, Circle in the Sand? No, I haven't. Oh, Jesus, man. That, that is an eye-opening book. I mean, I, I did intel in, in Iraq, and I was completely unaware of really what was going on around me until I read that book. Really? Oh, man. And it it'll be really hard to, like, ever trust anything the government ever says again after you read that book because i mean they they basically pigeonholed saddam where like i said rational actors theory right saddam had no choice but to do what he did dude no choice but to invade kuwait and then everything from that point forward was all engineered like oh my god you really really need to listen to jocko's podcast series called the unraveling because it talks who i started that Oh my god, dude! It, he talks about that. They start off from like the very beginning of insurgency and stuff like that. Like, I would say a good counterbalance to it would be to watch, um, fuck, what's his name, Curtis's. Um, oh my god, I'll have to pull it up. But uh, there's this great documentary by Adam Curtis, and it's about like how we really got involved. Everything from like the coup of ni- in the 1950s where we assassinated you know, the president of Iran and put the Shah in power and stuff like that all the way up into like what we, between the Americans and the British did in Iraq and in uh, and, uh, and Afghanistan and stuff, or uh, Iraq and all that, where we were basically like, we did, they, a lot of them in the very early days didn't know who to kill. They just basically, and they ended up killing some. What year did it come out? In some instances. It was just a few years ago. It's called Bitter Lake by Adam Curtis. It's a great documentary about it. But um, what I was going into was like, so in the Jocko podcast, they talk more about from the military strategic perspective, and it goes into, you know, like how in the first Gulf War and stuff like that, they didn't know how insane, you know, it took 10 years for them to really see the extent of what Saddam Hussein was doing, and that's when they kind of stepped in. But when they stepped in and they're in the Gulf first Gulf War, they hit them so fucking hard, there was nothing they could do. And, you know, a, a lot of lessons weren't learned from that. And that's why, you know, there's a lot of 
you know, I think Jocko said it for, you know, there was, they didn't really understand what their enemy was in 2001, 2002, even it was a lot different than what they were doing then. And it, it goes all the way through to the evolution of what's now ISIS and how they're the same people more or less. But it's a really, really good podcast series. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely started that one. Should be fun. But I'm not that far in yet, so Fucked up. I, like, I don't have uh, a whole lot of knowledge on it. The other guy's name he's talking to in it. But yeah, he uh, introduced him at the end, uh, the beginning. Yeah, Daryl something. <laughs> um, but like they go into like detailed accounts of how insane Saddam Hussein's role was or rule was, <clears throat> and like the different types of ways that they, he would torture people who disobeyed him more or less i I lived in the i lived in his political prison we took over what was basically their version of the cia we took over that compound in 2003 and i set up camp like in the political prison they had like meat hooks on the wall where he would hang people yes that's what i was that's what they're talking about so you saw (laughs) these like fucking torture rooms yeah dude i lived in that <laughs> I got pictures oh, of me awful. in one of the cells, and it had it was really yeah. crazy. Like I remember reading, like there was uh, some Chinese dude had been in there, and he had been, there was some Chinese writing, but he had been keeping track of the days he was in there, and it was just like the whole wall of days. But part of the thing that I was doing there was we were uh, we were looking for missing persons, so we were trying to to get all of the all of the paperwork, you know, from the from the Bath Party headquarters and all that. So we, you know, to try to find missing political prisoners. And holy shit, dude, it was, I mean, talk about a task. There's piles and piles of microfish up to your knees, laying everywhere. They tried to burn it all. In the beginning of his his takeover, he literally brought all the, like the leaders more or less together. And was just like, if I call your name, go to the back of the room to get executed more or less. And, and it's you know, like, dude, that that takes me back. I'm glad you brought that up. I I remember talking to a to an Iraqi, just a dude on the street, and I was asking him about this. I said, "Man, uh, he was telling me all the bad things that Saddam did, you know." And I said, "Well, why why did you guys not rise up?" And he says, "It was as if the walls had ears." And think about where we are today. Right. You can't rise up. No. I mean, like, I'm honestly wondering, like, how long... I'm, a, I'm excited if this mass exodus goes on for Parler, but I'm honestly curious, like, how far Parler can go before they have to censor something, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, I mean, yeah, true. But, it, you know, I mean, when you think about just the very act of if you tried to organize any kind of... Like, let's just say hypothetically speaking, that some real unconstitutional shit come down the pipe, and you're like, okay, well, we absolutely have to fight back. You can't organize. It's as if the walls have ears. There's very few of us that actually believe in comms and ham radio, goddammit. (laughs) I do. I I, I lost my DMR in a boating accident, thank you. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no and like the reason why i even brought that whole thing up was that you know going back to what we were speaking about in the very beginning about you know kind of this tribalism masculinity femininity concept 
the people nowadays in the social media world that's essentially shut down and a lot of people are indoors and, you know, not getting out of their real bubble. They don't understand that, like, even in the context of those wars and whatnot, there was a lot of opposition from that. I was in opposition to that in the 2000s. But now after, like, to speaking on all my friends and, like, even, you know, listening to audios and reading about this type of stuff, like, no, that's fucking warranted. Those people need to be taken down. And I guess it frustrates me to a degree that people nowadays will talk trash to the people who you know, are in, or who do our agriculture or do our logistics and transporting all these goods that we need to survive and live comfortably and don't have the slightest clue that, you know, 3,000, 5,000 miles away, there's people who are like cutting dicks off and whatnot because they said they didn't like you. <laughs> and really, I, I think the healthy nation is very much like a healthy marriage. You know, if we take this back to the man and the masculine and the feminine, and if you had a healthy marriage, like it, it's not necessarily fifty-fifty. There always has to be a head. I had a preacher once tell me if if you have two heads in a relationship, you have a monster, right? Right. There's got to be a head. There's got to be someone who is the voice, uh, the rational voice, the the person who who creates constraints. And then you have to have a softener, someone who brings the romantic appeal and, the, you know, you don't want to go to a town that doesn't have a single lefty in it. I mean, that's, I grew up in a town where it was illegal to dance in town. <laughs> Damn. So, loose. <laughs> that's wild, dude. Yeah. It was illegal to dance in the town? Yeah. yeah. Until, like, uh, for anybody? Game. Dude, Footloose comes from where I'm from, man. Yeah. So that's what happens when there's no people on the left. So you need that, but mm-hmm. they are not supposed to be the ones who are in charge of law and order. That's not their <laughs> that's job. They are the good wife, but you treat a good wife. Well, you know what I'm saying? You don't abuse your authority as the leader. You respect her and, and you treat her well and you provide for, her, but she needs to understand that you are providing for her and be grateful for it. And, you know, it's funny, like, it goes back to that point of like, you know, even like those roles switch, you know, you have to have the warrior archetype and you have the have to, you know, the masculine archetype and you have to have the feminine archetype. And then sometimes one's balanced back and forth. I used to say this all the time in high school and an old friend of mine loved it. But, uh, you know, it's to say like in a relationship, you always, there always was a dick and a pussy in a relationship. And those roles switch. It wasn't necessarily like you're a guy and you're the dick and you're a girl and you're the pussy. No, those roles switch. Men can be emotional, dumb assholes. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, well, I, I sometimes I'm a bitch and, and I, I it takes a all goddamn day and I can fucking admit it. Those roles <laughs> switch. It's not fucking, you know, this whole idea of toxic masculinity is not real to me. Um, so. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's funny how you see all these, like, patterns and shit like that, and I guess, uh, for time's sake, you guys want to have some closing thoughts on the conversation about this so far? I know this was supposed to be about the election, We never but... even made it to Tippy Canoe. <laughs> no, 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 What I was getting ready to go into is, like, let's transition into okay. Tippy 
<laughs> well, that does that is election related, honestly. All right. Moral of the story is do your research and don't accept everything the media and the elites tell you. Boom. That's solid advice, really. Turn the fucking TV off, too. Like the the cable one. And fuck around and find out, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well. let's, uh, I'm gonna, I already know that, you know, John, you obviously know a lot about this, and I'm actually really excited to have you for this conversation for that. Ooh, and me too, Britain, me too. And Britton, I know you've done a lot of research, and so I'm essentially the ignorant one in this conversation. I read the Wikipedia page. So I'm going to let you two lead this. I can literally step out of the way, but I actually, I did so much research because I had just heard about it this past weekend. I was over at my uh, grandfather's house and my uncle's house, and we get to uh, talking about this kind of stuff. And he uh, he said, wait till you hear about the curse of Tippecanoe. And I was like, huh? So I, me instantly, I'll, I'll get it and Google it. And I pulled it up and I started looking into it and I was like, no shit. I was like, there's no <laughs> way. So I'll I'll give a brief description and uh, I'll let you take it away if you want, John. Um, I can chime in basically on whatever. Um, but basically the curse of Tippecanoe is a 20 year presidential curse or supposed pattern of deaths of the presidents of the United States while they're in office. Um, and it's specifically presidents in office and elected in the years that are evenly divisible by 20. So ending in zero, basically. So you can use your imagination and go through it all like the, like, uh, there's been a couple that have, that have escaped it. Right. It got all the way up to Ronald Reagan. And I think that's the one they say may have broken it, but I don't think it's broken. I'm going to choose. I'm going to be the guy they go on a pencil in that I'm going to believe that it still happens because it's astrology. It's actually the great conjunction and the great conjunction of the planets, Jupiter and Saturn more specifically. It occurs regularly uh, every 19.6 years on average. So it's going to occur every time around then. The next great conjunction will occur on December 21st, 2020. That's okay, can can you do me a favor and and back up on that because I lost the voice connection to you, so I didn't get to hear what you were saying. No, it's all good. Um, what I was saying is that um, this actually aligns up since you brought up Reagan because him and his uh, wife believed in astrology, but it aligns up with what's called a great conjunction, and it's a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn specifically. It occurs about every 20 years, 19.6 years on average. And um, that next great conjunction occurs December 21st, 2020. So I found it pretty odd that that this this curse lines up. I actually read it in the lore somewhere. Uh. What's that, Joel? I said it's always the winter solstice. I mean, we, we see this in, like, the Mayan calendar and shit like that. So here's here's the question with that. So when when William Harrison went in and destroyed Prophetstown, do we know if that same alignment was happening then? 
I'm not sure. Wasn't when James Harrison goes in and destroys Prophetstown. I think that's when he actually has that revelation, right? When he's smoking the pipe or something and kind of passes out. Well, see, I don't, I don't know all of the details of that, so I'm, I'm learning about that as well. All right. So, from my understanding, that event in itself was that essentially there was shit talk. I'm gonna do this in like gangsta gangster fucking summary. Go for it, there was Shit talk, and then Harrison <laughs> came down, and the, you're gonna have to correct me on the name, but the Tipsima guy was out of town at the moment he first showed up, and it was just his brother, the Prophet, that was there. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, hey, let's not battle until tomorrow or the next day, and then we'll sit down in peace and have a discussion, more or less, about what the next steps are. And then apparently some other tribes kind of interfered um, with that kind of peace treaty. I think it was the Winnebago Warriors in particular, and they went and tried to, to avoid essentially imminent fucking war. They went ahead in the middle of the night the Winnebago Warriors went and tried to assassinate Harris, and that's when everything just kind of blew up. And then, you know, fast forward, that's when the Tuscoma guy did the curse of Tippecanoe or whatever on the yeah, and 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 Tinsquatawa was he was kind of a dummy too because he, I guess, he must have smoked something and thought that these magic beans were going to prevent the white man's bullets from striking the warriors. <laughs> and it didn't work out that way. <clears throat> well, I think when you talk about the uh, what was it, Prophet's Town, or that was that was towards the end of everything. This goes all the way back to like 1792 of the uh, wow. the fallen uh, the Battle of Fallen Timbers or whatever. It was Harrison fighting against the Shawnee natives, mm. and the reason of this battle started because um, I believe it was some treaty violated. And uh, because all the settlers were moving in, all the white folks were moving in, violating like whatever kind of peace thing they had going on, mm-hmm. spurred up the Shawnee Wars. And that's what kind of this this battle of fallen timbers is what sparked up, you know, this yeah, little, this little killed, beef uh, between the two. Yeah, they killed Tecumseh's father in that. <clears throat> yeah. White. So, yeah, so they. um. So you talked about Tenskanawa. That was actually Tecumseh's brother. And that is the uh, guy they actually call the prophet. He's the one that created uh, Prophetstown. And that came later on when Prophetstown was destroyed. That's when he had the vision. And that's where the curse later came. But the story starts out with Tecumseh. Dude, and check this out. What's early on, because he he led the band of Shawnee warriors years after the Revolutionary War against the white settlers in Ohio. And traveling down the Ohio from Pennsylvania under the authority of Chief uh, Blackfish, was uh, he moved into Kentucky at Bur- Boonesboro and uh, even fought people like Daniel Boone and shit. Uh. Yeah, dude, it was pretty fucking wild. But yeah, later on uh, is when Tuscanada starts putting on like some some crazy fucking drugs or something <laughs> and sees the shit. <laughs> So I'm also curious what the Red Sticks were. Are you familiar with the Red Stick uh, revival that Tecumseh started up? Nah, not in particular. So a lot of these prophecies that he would have, he would he threw these Red Sticks into the fire, and then they'd have these prophecies. And I'm curious what the hell those sticks were. Like, I want some. Right. <laughs> they do say that the prophet's warning specifically was Harrison may win next year. 
If he does, he shall not finish his term. He will die in office, and after him, every great chief chosen every 20 years thereafter will die. And that was in 1836. And I believe that there's something like it's held true with everyone from Virginia. Like there's been a couple escaped it, but nobody that was born in Virginia. Something like that. Yeah, and it says that the uh, some people even then were believing that it was because of the alignment of the planets, specifically that conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Oh, well, that's that's interesting. It might suck to be a president, like you know, this year. <laughs> yep, maybe right. that's why Trump don't want it. I mean, you know, Biden's like pushing. Or is that just kind of lining up? Because, you know, their rituals and shit, is that just kind of lining up with their rituals, kind of like off the old man? Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of wild, man. So uh, earlier, Joel, I told you that that it was Tecumseh that was my great-great-great-great-grandfather, but I I talked to my mother about it. That's what I was always told as a kid. Um, She said it was actually Tecumseh's. Apparently had a brother, Benjamin, that was from... Okay, his father was kind of a a player, I guess. But uh, he had a half-brother, Benjamin, by a white captive. I think Benjamin was his name. If I can, uh, It's been a little bit. Anyway, I, told, I want my mother to send me all the, the documents. Dude, that's sick <laughs> that you say that because I do remember reading where they would battle like uh, in the wars for like the British troops and shit. So they would yeah. like they would mingle with some fucking white people, but not every white dude. You know what I'm saying? So they would well, like fight alongside them. There's actually some uh, thought that Tecumseh's mother might have actually been white. Dude, oh wow, dude! If you look at the pictures of him and shit, man, yeah, he's light skinned He's a mulatto. Yeah, he, in dude, fact, he's so fucking sick. That's here's what's ass. really interesting is when I first started learning about Tecumseh, I went up to the Cowboy Museum in Oklahoma City, and. Uh, his first picture that I'd ever seen of him, and he looks just like my father. Oh wow, that's crazy! So my dad's got that real shiny, strong, that strong look to him, you know. Yeah, yeah, dude, that's sick. Natural well, leader, like going off your thing with like the British and fucking white people and shit. When I was reading earlier, was like, so after that attack that I had mentioned that Harris did on them, and then he became president, and this kind of is what. Essentially, it was the primary thing that led to the War of 1812. And in 1812, Harris and his, you know, his cabinet and whatnot were, you know, that was one of the reasons why they were so pissed off at Britain is because Britain was funding all these adversaries of the U.S. government, more or less. And they were the ones that were giving the Shawnee and all the, and, you know, that particular group with weapons and whatnot. And... I read something also, too, that eventually, I'll never be able to say his name right, text him whatever, um, he actually got pissed off and went against the British because they didn't give him enough ammo when they were firing Harrison or whatever. So, I mean, it's it's a, it's a pretty interesting story how all that played out. Yeah, they were severely uh, outnumbered. Tecumseh formed a confederation of between, like, five or 700 warriors, and the U.S. Army had, under Harrison, had more than 1,000 soldiers. In the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811-1812. It led to heavy uh, Shawnee casualties, and they had to retreat eventually to uh, Prophetstown. It's pretty wild shit. They uh, they did some pretty dumb shit to their uh, to Prophetstown, man. I mean, they uh, 
they burned the village and confiscated all their food. <laughs> they desecrated right. uh, remains of Native Americans and the local cemeteries and stuff there. And this is in Prophetstown. Yeah, and then the British were the ones that helped them rebuild it to fight them. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, who? it could all also be horseshit, too, because we see that, <laughs> obviously, the magic beans didn't work. And, right. <laughs> you know, there's the idea of the... Uh, the the lottery what's it called the uh there's a fallacy lottery fallacy where it's like well you know sure every president died that came into you know into these years but it, right. i mean when you look at it the list isn't really that big um yeah there's only so many that actually died but yeah one died from typhoid uh three were assassinated four four assassinated and then heart attack and cerebral hemorrhage you know what i mean they're and back then you know the likelihood of dying was pretty fucking good like right. you could if die you were, from a rusty nail like a 50 year old then is a 100 year old now yeah <laughs> Well, Abraham so Lincoln was. Oh, there's some crazy actually... shit. Like, yeah, I was telling Joel earlier about the the Great Madrid earthquake, and mm, yeah. legend has it that Tecumseh went down. You, you know, because he was married to one of his wives was a a Creek, and he was going down trying to join the, get the Creek nations to join him in the fight against the white men, and uh, so he went down there. He's trying to rally them with his prophets from Prophetstown doing the red stick revival and he couldn't get them to come with him and he says you know what? i'm gonna leave my prophets here with you i'm gonna go back and by the time i get back to detroit or Tippecanoe or wherever you know i'm gonna stomp my foot and your wigwams are gonna come down your heads and there's a speech that someone recorded that's very similar to that in, in its nature but this is just the story that i heard um anyway so that was when about that same time when was when the uh, Drake Madrid, Madrid, uh, the Great Madrid earthquake happened that rolled the Mississippi backwards, and supposedly their wigwams come down. And they all got freaked out, and they're like, "Oh shit!" You know, Tecumseh has reached Detroit. <laughs> That's fucking wild. Oh. It's funny that you mentioned that. Like, I wonder if they still teach that shit in school, just randomly, random thought. Because I remember learning where shit like that, like. I always had some. I always managed to find some pretty cool teachers in like grade school. Like I had a social studies teacher who was like an ex general, and he just taught us nothing but geography and like crazy fucking facts about geography. And then he was like taught us how to pack for a vacation and stupid shit. But like we would learn shit like <laughs> nice. that. You know, we would learn shit like that. Like you know, when all that shit happened and uh, the Mississippi reversed itself, and like you know, all this other like weird history stuff that i don't imagine you learn on mainstream I, I love to store to tell stories and that's why i really wish they'd let me teach history instead but you know someone got the idea that they want me to teach math but <laughs> so i use in math i every opportunity i can i tell stories like today i was telling the stories of uh pythagoras and his cult instead of actually like teaching the theorem <laughs> that makes my Dude, life so if complete. you get them here's my thing though if you get them interested in math through avenues that way, they're more than likely to take it with them after yeah. this. So, so yeah. I think what you're doing is more proactive than what the curriculum 
may or may not call for Dude, it. Dude, I hated math, and then I watched Pi and learned statistics. Boom. Like, I'm about it. Let's, let's get this shit in. All right, and I'm... Uh, dude, I'm with you on the history thing, dude. I fucking love history. Yeah, it's, stories are fun, you know? Yeah. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln wasn't actually killed by John Wilkes Booth? That it was the doctors driving that fucking bullet further into his brain? Or the ones I that actually know killed that. him? That Damn. he was shot with a Derringer, brother. So that 22 <laughs> little thing only went into his head so many millimeters... It it was possible for it to be taken out, I'm sure. Maybe not with the technology at the time, obviously, that those dudes had, but they drove it further deep into his skull and then in his head, apparently. And let, yeah, because he was alive. Oh, man. Have you ever, uh, I don't know, I mean, try to, I just don't know what to say, what, what not to say on podcasts, but uh, have you ever seen anyone? Hey, yeah, we're okay. <laughs> Have you ever seen anyone shot in the head? It's really interesting. Uh, a lot of JFK footage and stuff, dude, and a lot of different probes and stuff throughout that. Yeah, it's, reenactments. It's usually things. not as quick. It's usually not as quick as you would expect. It's quite dramatic. Well, yeah, I don't think, honestly, <laughs> I think the brain is, is around for a lot longer than you think, and who knows how much consciousness is still taking place well, at that time. Did you guys ever watch the, the brain are not working? Did you guys ever watch the old uh, faces of death videos that they used to have? Yeah, and okay. the, so they had the one, the silent scream, where they would like right. chop people's heads off and then pick it up. Yeah, and, like, <laughs> well, dude, yeah. their I eyes was, are still moving. I, shit. I saw a video like to my answer to that question was yes, um, mainly from out of you know Rotten dot com was like the, ah, I forgot about that shit. <laughs> out there but anyways like i had a buddy of mine send me a live video of uh what the fuck is that african isis guy's name um sakari oh i know here uh, you know i have him. no idea he was the one that was like kidnapping all those fucking girls and stuff and raping them and then chopping oh. Damn, he had like a whole bunch of sex slaves. They rescued like 900 yeah. chicks, right? Yeah. Was that yeah, the dude they like ended up finding and killing them in the pickup truck? hearing about him in the mainstream. It was like a Bakum Harim or some shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, my, my homeboy sent me a fucking video. I don't know where the fuck he found it, but it was one of their guys, and they chopped off this bitch's head with a fucking machete, and that was shit was insane. She was like screaming... While getting her head cut off, and then after her head had been fucking dismembered, you heard, like, a faint screen and just saw, like, the face fucking, like you said, being dramatic. Yeah, it's a, it's a common oh. um, Muslim punishment, is the silent scream. Like, you yeah, still it's have the, some, uh, uh, you still have that, some oxygen going on in there for a little bit. And, yeah, that goes way back to their, um, to their text. The, their stuff is, like, super fucking old school. I don't even think it's had a once over. You got it. Wait, I, anytime someone mentions that though, what pe a lot of people don't realize about Islam and Muslim ideology, that is actually a lot later past when the religion started than you would think. Yeah, that's that is true. I mean, it that's more like you think of like the caliphates didn't really begin until like six fifties, six sixties, um, CE. And by then, Muhammad had been dead for over 30 years, because before then, they didn't have access to paper, they, did, they didn't know how to write, 
they were literally ignorant campfires. And by the mm-hmm. time it got to the caliphate where they had access to, you know, animal fats and shit like that and could write it, it and then even then, like, it really didn't even get, like, hardcore crazy to what you believe it to be or those type of things in Sharia law until hundreds of years later. And, and that. that's taken many cycles, too. It's like where things are conservative and then liberal. Like, I was exactly. talking to an old man who uh, who built oil or the oil fields in the Middle East back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, something like that. And him and his wife lived all throughout Iraq and Iran and all the Middle East. And he's like, man, it was just like this really cool place. Like right. they're completely welcome there. The there was no craziness. Democracy, basically. Girls could wear mini skirts. Yeah, dudes used to go to Casablanca because that was like the place to get laid. You know. Right. That's cool. Well, and that's what, like, and that's why I tell people too, like, you know, because I had grown up the way I did, and because the time I grew up in, you know, post two nine eleven and stuff like that, there was a lot of anti-Muslim rhetoric. So. One of the things I did when I started studying theology, I literally spent two years. I even committed to, you know, essentially trying to be a practicing Muslim. And, like, it's just such an interesting history. Honestly, I could say their history was more peaceful than the Christians to an extent. And, like, and as John said, like, it was cyclical. Like, none of that shit really came down until a couple hundred years. And then it got taken back because the Sufis really had a lot of control and influence and whatnot. And then the Crusades happen, and honestly, if it wasn't for the Islamic culture, we would not have had the, you know, we didn't have algebra, we wouldn't have a lot of books, we wouldn't have a lot of the libraries and old history that you now get to. Well, and here's, like I said, we'll definitely put a focus on cyclical, and okay, so if it wasn't for the Persians, we wouldn't have a lot of stuff, but... Islam kind of took it into the dark ages for a little while. No, they did. Like, um, we're going a long way from Zorster to Muhammad. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, during those times between like Zoysterism and all that, that's when like, that's when the Muslims that you know today really, really became prominent. But, you know, prior to that, it was the Byzantine Empire. And you, you know, know what's crazy? We were talking about this why you have to have the why you have to have and I, I'm careful not to say the left, because the left I think is like something different. It's a different animal, like a it's a maladaptive power process. But you have to have the liberal, the yeah. the feminine brain, whatever you want to call it. You have to have that because even look at the the Islamic world, when you had liberals within the islamic world it was a really cool culture yeah. but then when they got into these ultra conservative bubbles it became insane right so i don't know <laughs> but they, they've, got, they've got a very similar mirroring to what we're doing because like i said i went into my primary purpose in iraq was to everything bath party related that was my job and the bath party is a a socialist organization it's not islamic it's uh it's leftist right it was the only like really um what the fuck they call it sectorial kind of group in the middle east at that time or you know in a post iran and like essentially before 
um, Saddam really came into power, it was the Baathists that were, you know, the liberal and progressives of the world at the, in that in the Middle East at least. Yeah, and Saddam, yeah, Saddam was a Baathist too, but it was like, yeah, they were they were actually not Islamic. They were um, what's, what's the term I'm looking for? But they secular. That's right. That's what I was saying. And and we came we came into the Middle East and we unseated all of these secular Baathist yep. regimes and we put in the extremist. We did. <laughs> we put the, the Wahhabis in power in Saudi Arabia. We assassinated the fucking democratically elected president in the late fifties. And people don't. A lot of people don't realize we 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 liked oil. Yeah, <laughs> and that was really it. We were trying to we we had plans to send the oil straight up into Europe. Yeah, instead of it going towards Russia because Russia backs the Baathist party. Right, that's where Mujahid Hadin came from. Yeah, really interesting stuff, man. And I see when I first went in there, I wasn't. I, I couldn't understand why we were so obsessed with the Ba'ath Party because even after we crossed Shaddam, it was like you can't hire anyone who was ever a member of the Ba'ath Party. Like I couldn't even hire a driver for seven dollars a week um, if they had ever been in the Ba'ath Party. Right, and it, it really didn't make any sense until later after I learned a lot more about the dynamics of it. That's crazy. And you know that the, why did they want to remove this party from the face of the earth? Well, it's all because we were, you know, competing for power with Russia in the Middle East. That's wild, man. That is nuts. Well, I feel like we've come like really full circle, and somehow have managed to keep us all relatively connected. A fairly relatively. Well, we definitely went full circle. <laughs> yeah, we definitely went full circle, but, but that's the beauty yeah. of it, and that's kind of like you know one thing I feel like I've always connected with John and stuff on even in YouTube Britain is like this whole like Socratic thought and stuff like that, and just conversations that you know seeing the patterns and things. A lot of people don't realize that nothing is new. We all share the same ten thousand year old monkey brain. And have the same fucking thoughts, the same feelings, and same issues. It's just different conditions, different environments, different time periods. And, you know, that's why we put ourselves in these situations. It's because people are blindfolded by YouTube and social media and whatever the fuck else they want. There is nothing new under the sun. It even says it in the Bible. Oh, man. I quote that all the time. Oh, my God. I've got it hanging up on my wall behind my desk, brother. Swear to God, isn't it a uh, class is Ecclesiastes? I'm gonna fucking it up, dude. I'm yeah. sorry. Yep, I got to hang it up behind. I got a few that are my favorites, man. That I'm always looking to, and I'm not real religious, man. But I'm still like I find my own meaning in them. And they keep there, there's a reason all the rulers in the area came to Solomon for wisdom. Oh, Solomon, man. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice to be Solomon? Shit. Right. That's a whole nother conversation there, dude. Wouldn't it be nice to be Solomon? That bitch had to like uh no. Well that's gotta be saved for another day. Yeah. <laughs> All People right. don't understand, like motherfuckers were 
we are violent. We are fucking animals. We are fucking human. And that's we why are... nature's got to prevail. That's why it's got to uh, be a exactly. nature code. And we are the book of the law. in the best times in human history. It's like Daddy Bush is always saying he's wanting his little NWO and stuff. You know, uh, he uh, he always said that it's time for, and you'll hear it in our intro when we go back to the normal one after the elections are over, but or whatever this special's over, but. He says something about when the rule of the law, not the rule of the jungle, prevails. And I think it needs to be the opposite. I think it's the rule of the jungle is what's here, nature. Yeah, violence is golden. It's the great resetter. Yeah. Boom. That's what I've always relied on. But, fellas, we did kind of run long. Uh, Joe, you want to close this one out? You, yeah, any last thoughts from anybody? John, it was a pleasure. I yeah. greatly appreciate it, man. Yeah, I thank guess you for coming. Thank you for being here. Yeah, man, you're welcome That's anytime. Fun. And I think like we'll just do a round table real quick. Everybody have their closing thoughts and then we'll call it. Um, I guess, you know. Go ahead actually go ahead, John and then Britain, and then I'll close out. I, I guess my closing thought is that if when we want to understand things, we really need to think of systems. Uh, everything is a system. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything is cyclic. So just start trying to put everything into like a systems approach to understanding and you'll figure it out pretty quick. Completely agree. Brandon. Um, I, I don't really have anything, man. I'm good. All right, well, and I mean, like I'm pretty much going to dovetail off of that. It's, you know, even though there's a lot of stuff off topic from the election or even the typical new point or anything like that, the, the what's interesting about it is the fluidity of the conversation and just noticing that everything is cyclic, everything is a pattern, everything is connected in one way or another, and we must not well, forget that. Yeah, well, since you say that, I mean... The the seven basic and because you like the hermetics and I, and I will leave it on this. So the seven basic you know principles of the Kabbalion, you know it's all hermetics. Mm-hmm. Um, mentalism, the all is mind, the universe is mental. Uh, two is correspondence, uh, as above, so below. We all like that one. Right. Um, vibration, nothing rests. Uh, polarity, everything is dual. Uh, everything has its poles, and then you got rhythm. Everything flows, cause and effect, and then gender. Uh, everything has its masculine and feminine principles. Uh, gender manifests on all planes. And that's, I think that's, that's important it. to remember. Yep. We've been talking about all night. Everything has had a common theme that we have discussed tonight. And just fucking be good to people. Yeah, definitely be good to everybody around you, man. This election shouldn't, like, you know, change the way you live your own life and your own principles. Yeah, and it's hard. Don't I mean, you get sight. you get angry about these things, and it's hard not to take it out on the people you care about. Like you, you can be a dick. I have been a dick. I'm the first one to admit that. Like me too. I have been too. I, I to absolutely have. Back. I've had to hold back a lot over this last week because I am the type of person that will always fucking protect the weak and in the underdog and anybody else. And I don't care who the fuck you are or how close you are to me or how much I appreciate you as a person. If I see anybody attacking anybody, I'm going to call them the fuck out and I'm going to put them in line. 
and especially since Saturday, I've honestly, I haven't, I barely have lit, put up any type of social media thing, and luckily when I have, it was to see kind of John's post and insight on it. But other than that, I've had to leave it alone because. Well, that's that's why I'm taking down all my social media. Like I, I started getting angry and I was intentionally offensive. And I'm like, I don't really want to be that person. I don't want to be angry and offensive and, you know. Exactly. When you catch yourself, like, being the asshole that you're hating on, that's when you have to be like, yo, I have to right. Yeah, I had, go. I had that's, to step that's the very fuck mature. away for a minute. Yep. If you're not having fun on something that's supposed to be fun, or if you're not entertained while watching entertainment, I, I remember when we were farming with Tegrity. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's what I get. No one breaks each other's balls or can have a discussion and or disagree with each other. It all has to go to extremes. This whole cancel fucking culture is a thing, and it's absolutely fucking ridiculous. All right, well, well, brothers, I, I appreciated being on here with you. Thank you for bringing me on. Absolutely. Yeah, man, you're welcome anytime. Well, that closing thoughts took a while. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for joining us on another episode of Beard and Brain Podcast. Bye, bitches! <laughs>